This is Wise Guy Talks. Wise Guy Talks. Speaking truth to power. Exposing lies. Fake news. Fighting to restore American values. American values. Release the house. everybody it is time to release the hounds how about we record episode number 65 i'm going to call this one the journey with alir adami if everybody's ready we'll be right back with uh episode 65 the journey with alir adami doing today brother pretty good pretty good how are you uh, i'm good you know it's just been it's been a crazy month i've been working really hard trying to get my podcast in as much as i can so i can stay relevant which is not always the easiest thing in the world to do um nato kato my man kind of brought you on my radar screen he told me about you said you're a pretty interesting cat and i go that's a story that i want to tell so um, I understand that uh, you grew up in Albania up to age 14. After 14, you ended up uh, immigrating. I think it was Greece, and then you ended up in America. Can you just, in about five minutes, tell us about how you ended up in America? And also a little bit about your, let's start with your grandfather. Um, you, you know, what happened to him, how that impacted your family, and then we'll bring it to, to date, since it's all yours. Sure. Thanks for having me on the show, uh, on the podcast, Guy. So my story begins uh, in the 80s, uh, so I'm an 80s kid. Um, but before that, uh, I would say the story or the journey of my life was shaped by certain events that occurred uh, in the 60s where my uh, grandfather uh, was uh, arrested and tried with uh, within a military trial setting by the communist regime regime of Albania at that point. And that really dictated the, the fate of my entire family, uh, my dad's side, uh, where he was taken to uh, an internment camp or what some people like to call it, the gulags, um, for uh, several years as a child, he had to work in this remote village, pick up real big logs and, you know, undergo through some harsh conditions. Um, lived, they lived in a small kind of barrack there. And uh, communism was at its prime in the 60s. And during those years, um, Albania had gone through certain phases or experimentations of uh, trying to see what, you know, Marxism would bring to them. And this is a key uh, turning point in the, the, the country's history in that they, um, they had uh, aligned with the Soviets and at that point, they were kind of prepping, doing the prep work to make sure that they disassociate with uh, with them. Um, and so they had to come up with this fake uh, artificial group that supposedly was going to overthrow the government and 
my grandfather was uh, allegedly part of that group and uh, he was uh, again executed for that so for me this history is very important because this history had to be um, kind of be told when I came to the States and with respect to uh, how I how that defined me I would say that you know, living through harsh conditions, my, my family side, uh, for my mo- mother's side, uh, and they're the same, but for another complete different reason. And communism was uh, really the state of, you know, it was defining, it was the lifestyle of how people should live and how should they behave and things like that. So uh, just a quick question. You, you talked about your father being portrayed as the bad guy. Why, why was that element important in communism that they have a bad guy, somebody to hate, somebody to see as the oppressor? Uh, so that's really kind of the MO for communist regimes that I've kind of studied and kind of seen with all of these uh, situation in Albania where they had to make an example of a, of a family, of a group, and they continuously tried this within different cycles. So that's kind of like you need to bring in a situation or a group or a, a geographic village or city into uh, the spotlight so that they can attack it. So the whole concept of the oppressed and the oppressor came full scale in your family. You saw it. Absolutely. We, we saw it. We, you know, we're living through the, 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 the traumas of that. So your, your grandfather, what, what happened to your grandfather? He was executed and uh, we did not know where his remains were. We don't know the place of execution. We don't know where his, he was buried. So he is a missing person right now. What was the court like? Was it a military court or was it just a, like a closed door, fait of complet? Uh, it was a fair complete type of deal where um, all of the charges were they brought in like an attorney, uh, you know, who had to read the charges. He was supposed to be his defense attorney, but everything was kind of set up and there were no formal kind of procedures in, in, a, in, a, in a real sense, like a, in a real uh, judicial, you know, did your father way. get the charge sheet? Did anybody ever? So uh, we finally got the charge sheet in uh, the early 2000s, and I have copies of those, and I actually studied them, and it looks like they were like copy-pastes of other trials for other individuals. And it even the signatures, I think, were fake, and I'm just trying to collect, like trying to see a little bit of what my grandfather, what was left of my grandfather, and I cannot verify if it's his true signature on those charge documents. You, you talked about trying to intentionally uh, remember what his life would have been like, and you felt like, I think it was more for your father, but you, you felt like it was important for you to remember or to have some idea what their life was like to internalize it somehow or another. What, was the, what is the importance of you really wanting to fully understand what their lives were like? I think it goes back to the concept of, you know, if we don't know history we're condemned to repeat it it's in that vein but it's also like trying to understand the effects of oppression by a totalitarian regime you you said you wanted to embrace the trauma that your father why is that embracement of that trauma so important to you though as you alluded to 
I think it's important because it allows me to be transparent about our history, but also allow others to see into what are the, you know, shared sufferings or the, the sufferings of other groups. And I think, you know, uh, sharing that story is, is important within different audiences. Do you pass those stories to your children? Yes, I do. Indeed. In what format? Like at the dinner table, just sitting down, talking in the back porch? Absolutely. So my oldest, he, um, he is in sixth grade and he understands kind of things at this, at this juncture. And usually we go for walks around the neighborhood and uh, I would tell him how, um, you know, I'm concerned about our current times. And I, I would tell him that he needs to stay focused, but also understand that where it's like a deja vu for me and my parents where we're seeing a lot of our values and value systems being attacked by uh, certain groups what would that attack look like i mean what are you seeing um, currently in modern day in your environment what are you seeing so in my environment i'm seeing first let's just say in the workplace in the work uh, in the workplace it's almost like we have to adhere to the government mandates um that brings me to think of what the party asked us to do we have to do it this is kind of the mantra in a, in a, in a communist regime so if the party said it it's 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 law so let's go back your mom and dad met did they meet in a church? Was it a religious event? Was it a religious marriage? What was the value of religion? Let's kind of talk about how Albania looked at religion and during that time frame, which would have been what seventies, eighties, something like that. Yes. Yeah, so my parents met in the uh, in the eighties, and uh, prior to that, in nineteen sixty seven, Albania became the first atheist state in the world. So this was a a unique case in world history. Wow. And the rationale by the communist or the People's Party, Workers' Party, was that uh, uh, religion was the opiate of the masses, right. kind of reading off of the Marx, uh, Marxist uh, playbook. And uh, there were no, no churches, no temples or mosques or anything like that. They were all either raised to the ground. There are recordings of churches being burnt and destroyed by... Um, the culture police or whatever police, you know, was responsible over that. Uh. So curiosity here, because the Orthodox Church in Russia is still very important. How did how did the Orthodox Church in Russia avoid being raised to the ground? What, what was it special about Albania that were you guys just like a test cell for them or what? Yes, I, I think Albania was a unique lab laboratory uh, of sociology. Uh, it's it's a unique situation and not a lot has been written about this particular period in history. Um, I think it's a combination of people, you know, trying to. Um, get back to regular normal life after World War II and, you know, trying to recover from that and trying to rebuild the country. Um, they didn't feel like they had to, you know, I think they reacted a lot to the, to this religious institutions being destroyed, right. but 
it was more like the, the young generation uh, was indoctrinated in such a way where they, they felt that, you know, uh, religious life was secondary or, you know, had no particular meaning at that point. Was religion at all relevant to you growing up in Albania at, at any level? To me, it was. Um, although I had grown with, you know, was brought up with no particular religious upbringing, uh, it was. Um, Albania is also an, a unique uh, case study in that it fosters harmony across the different religions and the unifying thread amongst Albanian people is that they're first Albanian and then religion is important, but they, they harmonize that by, you know, respecting each other. So in the neighborhood where, um, I was born, you would have a church and a mosque within the same block and then people visited both. Yes. Very interesting. And mind you, these are, this isn't the ancient, like medieval kind of, these are both sitting over ancient medieval ruins of like ancient churches. So both would co exist um, peacefully. So what I find interesting is the French Revolution 1791. One of the core tenets to that uh, was the, the destruction of the family and the government would raise the family, but more importantly was the destruction of history and and all monuments, uh, all patriotism, all wiped clean. But most importantly, at the top of the pyramid was the destruction of religion. So this is kind of like 1791 coming full circle. Did it work? Um, it did not work at all. Uh, people still managed to perform their ritual, rituals um, at home. So they just managed to seclude it. It was in a public type of deal people would still baptize their children at home and secretively although there was no organized religion um however it i think it had a major effect on the new generations that had no core value systems um you know outside of like the the you know regular secular schooling in that the moral kind of backbone of a generation was not there because they were not brought up with these kind of core religious, you know, spiritual principles. And that, uh, that added to some challenges with this particular kind of population in that, uh, criminality increased, uh, you know, crime, uh, different types of crime. How about out, out of uh, wedlock, uh, relationships, children being born? I mean, was that still so, important? Yeah, I think what you're trying to get at is, you know, the entire institution of like family, right? right. How was that impacted, yes. right? I don't think that had an effect like, you know, by attacking religion, you know, I think the most impactful effects on the family was that families all thought the same. They were like cloned to think part of like a script somehow they dressed the same they talked the same they wore the same clothes ate the same food every the food was rationed um and so there were no there was no freedom or independence of thought there, that that concept was not there except for those people that were like um the persecuted people from the regime they would kind of still listen to the voice of america still kind of try to survive like my parents, 
So, so what you're describing are two different levels. You're describing um, one, uh, maybe the apparatchik, the, the, the party, the people that are in the party, and then were you allowed to uh, marry outside of the party? And if not, what was that called? No, no, that, that, wasn't, that was prohibited. Uh, it wasn't written down somewhere, but there were severe repercussions by the party if one uh, you know, who was privileged into, and then was a party member would marry um, outside of their, uh, into a family that was not a non-party member communist party member and therefore if someone did that they, they, there's a book by this famous albanian writer um it's called the successor uh, his name is ismail kadare also like a communist era writer he's right. well known in the, the literary circles in um, europe and in the world so he kind of talks about this forbidden marriage oh. Go ahead. and what this is it's it's more uh really getting to the crux of in you know intimate affairs of how a, a family should live its life the party manages every concept every little thing whether it's you know weddings and things like that the party is at every level every cell of the individual so the party is the new god absolutely the, 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 there is no god the party is the family nietzsche would have been very proud so m moving on, you did call that the bad biography. I thought that was an interesting name, bad biography. So they categorize people, but good biography, meaning people that were good with a party, they yeah. had no complaints. And the people who complained, they would, you know, they, they called it agitation propaganda, <laughs> agitprop. Uh, whoever said they, you would show up at a, you know, at a store and say, okay, something is not in stock. And you would say, oh, something is not in stock. You would complain. <laughs> You would receive a 20 year sentence. No way. And that's not funny. You're kidding me. 20 years? My, my, my uncle, he's now um, no longer with us. He received a five year sentence just for complaining about a very typical thing that a typical consumer would say at a, at a store. And are these, are they reported by fellow neighbors? I mean, is this the ultimate extrapolation of the cancel culture and wokeism? I mean, it, it, it so you're, we're seeing uh, certain nuances of that, but it would be, so the cancel culture is, is a thing. This is kind of like what I'm seeing right now and happening in the States where you would have someone report you for not adhering to the, you know, core tenants of the party. This happened to me. I got reported to my employer for supposedly being a racist. Being, If you look my name up, it's all over the web now. So forever, I'm stuck with this ridiculous thing that they did. They never proved it. Of course, there is no proof of it. Yeah. Um, to your point about spies, so this particular system only is able to sustain itself with a strict system of spies um, apparatchiks, as you said, people who really are very subservient to the party and really cannot think for themselves. These are the people that feed into this ecosystem of, you know, communist. I wonder, I look at Facebook and I look at Twitter and I look at uh, um, uh, Google, in particular, I look at their YouTube and they kicked me off of YouTube and I had 
hundreds of hours of World War II interviews, and they just, without any due process whatsoever, they kicked me off because I dared uh, video some radicals at a high school thing that were harassing the parents as they came in. So they deleted hundreds of hours of uh, military interviews from World War II guys. I, I, think, I think YouTube is one of the most atrocious anti-American companies out there. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. But what I was thinking about was, think about in your little community, had they have had Twitter or Facebook, think about how much quicker they could have uh, wiped you guys out by you know putting up photographs or videos or whatever. So there, the concept of create, you know, creativity or creating art, it had to go through some rigorous parameters, right? Um, I think the art movement at that time, I think, was called realist, realist socialism, where everything had to fit within the parameters, speech, expression within the parameters of the party. So the the concept of censorship is very close to me and my family. My father, you know, almost got arrested for having a banned book, basically. Uh, but he, he still read, you know, books that were like Western books and non, like non-Soviet books. Was it Fahrenheit 911, Ray Bradbury? <laughs> Wasn't that where they burned the books and they had the police, the firemen that went around and tried to catch people that had the wrong books? Yeah, yeah. You lived it's, through that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is no free-flowing th- thoughts. There is no ability to move, um, you know, across different geographical boundaries. Everything is closed off. You have to get this this passport or this little ID thing that they stamp in little in checkpoints. So everything was strictly uh, controlled, governed, and monitored by uh, the regime. So like a vaccine passport in order, before you can get on an airplane. Oh, yeah. Or that, go, that, go uh, into this business or that business. Yes. Unless you're a school teacher in California, then you don't have to do it. So they're the, there with a good biography, right? Yeah. Oh, that's the good the biography. Yes. <laughs> okay. If we don't have a vaccine and we have a bad biography, we're bad. So we're at the 22-minute mark. I always try to go for 30 minutes on these things. Uh, we're moving quickly towards 1997. You actually did not grow up with your mom and dad. Tell me why briefly where you ended up and why you ended up. So I was, um, I went to um, a village where um, my grandparents and my mother had been interned. And that's where I grew up. Essentially, that was the the internment camp where they had sent my mother uh, for a completely, totally different reason and charge. uh, And that is her uncle had escaped to the U.S., therefore she was the enemy and had to live there. Um, what was that like? We're talking uh, controlled movements. And you, you have no freedom of speech. You have uh, child labor, forced labor, harsh um, life. And um, my experience was that I do recall, like if it's very vivid to me, there was like long lines and people had to get petrol for like cooking. And uh, Everything was strictly governed, like you have these decrepit buildings, but everything is governed by, you know, the commune and the commune was kind of the system of the local management there. And uh, there were these 
bureaucrats or the apparatchiks as you you had called them earlier where they had absolute power over that the life of uh, the social life of that village and for me uh i have seen certain behaviors that and, and certain you know experiences that i lived through where that you know we we were feel fearful of being monitored and turned in right and after 1991 when you know the berlin wall fell and everything we thought that you know every you know that kind of fear and all that the regime was toppled but only to hear and find out that the socialists um the communists named themselves as socialists so they turned their coats and my father always said that there's nothing good that's going to come out of this we have to leave and the situation was such and at that point in history 1997 where we were thinking you know the the communists are going to come back and hit us really badly and we were fearing for our lives and that's when we made the decision to leave everything behind um, before we leave let's talk uh, about what was public school like or whatever you called it uh, in albania for you specifically what was that like uh, public school uh, in, in a communist regime was very rigid, very rule-bound. Uh, there is no uh, room for creativity. There is no room for uh, intellectual kind of growth. It's all about whatever the curriculum says. It's all controlled centrally by the Ministry of um uh, education at that point and everything had was dictated top down there was no uh for me as an experience there was everything was ruled by fear like i have i feared my teachers i feared uh whoever was running the the school it, it was it was very intimidating did, did you study primarily uh, mathematics you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, or was there a lot of indoctrination involved in the process? So I did study the core um, things, and I recall this very vividly. I actually, I have a good memory uh, for, for a kid. Uh, in kindergarten, they were prepping us to prepare against an attack um, from, uh, they call it diversant, you know, a person that comes from the outside that's going to attack the local community. So they were prepping us, mind you, this is, I was in kindergarten and, uh, the kindergarten teacher was prepping us to what to do to report suspicious activity and, uh, you know, whoever looked different and whatever they looked different, they had these images and the flip in a flip chart and they set us down. They were talking about that. So it's almost as, you know, as a kid, I had to live under fear um, of the unknown, the, the, the enemy, right? And this is in the late 80s, you know. How important, I mean, did they ever talk about Ceausescu or did they talk about, for example, Che Guevara or um, any of the other, uh, like Camilo Sanfuego, did they ever talk about any of these guys? No, they actually, that's not the model that uh, the Albanian uh, communists follow. The the dictator, uh, Enver Hoxha, he wanted to strictly follow Stalin's kind of, he wanted to walk in his foot, you know, in his footsteps. 
and Lenin and Marx. These were the three. And then there's like propaganda all over. I remember as a kid, I would see them in like in the side of the murals of the school. And we had them in the walls of the, the schools. And basically it's kind of those images are very uh, real for me. I'm going to start bringing up the music here. This is uh, this is definitely not going to be the end of this, but we are bumping up against the 30-minute limit, limit, and that's kind of what I've said is my goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we're doing is we've worked up to with a layer up to a 1997, which was the big uh, war. If you remember, the UN was uh, great, greatly involved. Bill Clinton was the president of the United States. It was Kosovo, Croatia, and who else? Serbia. Serbia. And it was a bloody, nasty war, and you can go look on YouTube. Anyhow, we're going to break out. We're going to conclude episode 65, and we'll pick it up with episode 66 when we come back with The Journey, Alir Adami.